Hey, we're in Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews 6, if you have a Bible, please turn there. You're at home. You should have no excuse. You should have a Bible. But Hebrews chapter 6, we are going to continue our way uh, through Hebrews on Mother's Day, and we'll talk about that. Um, Here is the big idea of Hebrews. The big idea, our theme, what we keep going back to is this idea of fix your eyes on Jesus. Look to Jesus. When you're exhausted, when you're tired, when you want to give up, when there's persecution, when there's trials, he's saying, look to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Jesus is better. I mean, if you haven't gotten the theme of Hebrews, is he gives an example and says, Jesus is better. Look at the law. Jesus is better. Look at the priesthood. Jesus is better. Look at Moses. Look at Aaron. Jesus is better. He's constantly just beating that drum of fix your eyes on Jesus. He is better because this church was going through it. Uh, Nero, Caesar Nero is in charge. There's crazy persecution. The church this time is going underground. They're exhausted. They're wiped out. It seems as if they're second guessing a lot of things. And so there's now a desire to not just walk by faith, but to go back to the physical. And so the author is saying it's not worth it. The physical is a shadow of things to come. And the things that came was Jesus. And so he's just trying to constantly point them to Jesus. So we are going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 12 today. And this is, I would say without a doubt, this chapter in chapter 10 of Hebrews is the most probably divided and maybe even misunderstood verse in all of the Bible. And I don't think that's an understatement. I think this is a a very difficult verse. I think people really struggle with what this is saying, what's happening. I've definitely had my wrestle with this. I've been wrestling with this. This is one of those weeks where you're not entirely, you know, looking forward to preaching this sermon, but at the same time, you know it's necessary and you're praying that there's healing in this process. So we're going to be looking at Hebrews 6, verse 4 through 12, and don't worry, in the next 45 minutes, we're going to settle 2,000 years of debating. Don't worry, it's going to be all answered right here, right now. Not really. Um, But let's read Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 12. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. And by the way, is this on still? I'm making sure. Okay, cool. Sorry. All right, here we go. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. It says this, For it is impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they, cruci- since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivating receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and uh, near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Verse 9. But beloved, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We're going to pray and uh, really just want to slow down even now and just ask the Lord to lead this time, to lead my thoughts, to lead what's said. And really we just, we need him to bring clarity and we need him to really bring, I think, healing with when it comes to this passage. Because this passage I think has caused a lot of hurt or uh, maybe unnecessary fear. Or also maybe this is a wake-up call as well. So we just want to pray over this and that God would speak. So let's, let's do that. Father, um, we thank you for this beautiful, this beautiful day that is Mother's Day. The fact that we can celebrate just mom, motherhood as a whole. God, the women in our church who give and pour out so much. And we are reminded this truth, God, that you are not unjust to forget their work and labor of love and our work and labor of love and We just are so thankful for that reminder that you are not unjust. And God, as we come across some difficult territory in the scripture, some scripture that is emotionally charging for a lot of us, 
we ask that you would just bring clarity and healing and that your spirit would do a work in lives right now and that ultimately, Jesus, while we still can, that everyone would repent and would come to you and would believe in you and that we would not put this off. So we thank you, Jesus. We ask that you'd be here in your wonderful name. Amen. Uh, You know, let's get right to it. I don't think there's a church in America right now going over Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 on Mother's Day. We are probably the only church, dare I say, in the world going over Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 6 on Mother's Day. And yes, we're that kind of church because that's where we're at. That's the passage we're in. I don't know if anyone's going to go tell their friends later, like, yo, you got to listen to my pastor's sermon. He spoke on Hebrews 6 on Mother's Day. It was mind-blowing. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe that will happen, but uh, probably in a different kind of a way. Um, This really isn't one of those passages you would normally choose to walk through on Mother's Day, but again, we're in this, and here's actually how I want to relate this. Um, This is a text where the author's intent is, I think, Really, if you are a mother, a believing mother, a a lover of Jesus, and you're a mom, your desire is to see your son and our daughter and your kids walk with Jesus. I think all the moms at home would agree and say amen. If you love Jesus, you're you're a mother who believes in Jesus, what do you want more than anything? You want to see your kids walking with Jesus, knowing Jesus, staying close to Jesus. And the author's intent today is your intent. The author's hope today is saying, stay close to Jesus. Um, look to Jesus. Don't go back to former things. And what our prayer is for everyone listening, and again, I really do believe every mom's heart for their kids is that, is don't go astray. Don't abandon what you've been taught to stay focused on Jesus, to press into Jesus, and to embrace the gospel. So this is the author's hope and intent. Now, I'm saying all this because if, as you just read it with me, um, Hebrews 6, verse 4 through 6 is a very emotionally charging scripture. You know, I want to I be very um, sincere and careful how I communicate some of this text because I genuinely have known people who've read this and thought this spoke of them. They're saying, I've gone past the point of no return. I could never repent again or be right with God. I've talked to people who've thought that they were literally like walking condemnation, that there's no way for them to ever believe or turn back to God. And they've used this verse to really kind of put them in this terrible place mentally and spiritually to believe, I'm not forgiven. And obviously that's not the author's intent here, and we want to talk through that. Um, I really do believe as long as there's breath in your lungs to repent, you can repent. And so we want to explain this and unpack this because we are assuming the wrong thing here. We're assuming the person here wants to repent. And that's not what we really see here. So we're going to really walk through this, slow down. Um, And here's something I even want to point you guys to as we talk through this. The author shares some really heavy stuff. And this, this happens in a lot of times in epistles or this style of writing, where it's almost like warning you and then encouraging you. So if you look at Hebrews 6 verse 9, what does he say? Hebrews 6 verse 9, he says, But beloved, and he changes from those, those who do this to you, beloved, the first time and only time he calls him beloved in this book. Beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. So he's going, this is a heavy warning. I mean, we can't get away from the fact that uh, the author really seems to be trying to create this really, this big warning, this warning for a group of people that we're going to talk about. But at the same time, he goes, but we don't see this in you guys. He's saying to this church, the the Hebrew believers, he's saying, but we don't see this in you. We're confident of better things. Yes, things that accompany salvation. So for us today, the title is Confident of Better Things. Confident of Better Things. Um, Because we are going to walk through some heavy texts. And like I said, this really is the most divided uh, scripture, I think, in the New Testament. This and Hebrews 10, which we'll just wait a few more weeks and you'll see me sweating then. Um, But these are probably the two most divided texts. And I, I, here's, here's how every author said this. I'm going to put a quote up just because everyone said this. This text is so difficult to interpret definitively. Now you're like, what's so special? Um, everyone said this. I went through, I don't know, probably a dozen commentaries uh, this week, and I've, I've studied this passage 10 years ago. I try to get authors on different sides, different perspectives. Everyone's, everyone has the same, like, um, this is the hardest text to interpret. This is a very difficult text. Now, I do want to share this. We're trying to answer three questions essentially every time we preach or teach God's word. Um, Who is it written to? So that's the big question. Who is this written to? What is he saying? And how does this apply to us? So we need to know 
we need to have good hermeneutics, good tactics on how we study the Bible now more than ever. Who is he writing to? What is he saying? How does this apply to us? By the way, um, everyone disagrees on these. They, everyone disagrees on who he's writing to, they disagree on what he's truly saying, and they disagree on then how this leads to application in our lives. So get ready for just um, a great message that I'm going to do like ninja dance uh, around this. So uh, not around this, but into this. So here's the idea. We're going to actually take four views, four of the most common views that are offered in this text, and even these four views, these are the four most held views on Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 6, even these have different like offshoots and branches of how this can be explained. Um, but this is probably my su- the best summary I can give to you of here's how to interpret this. And then we're going to look at here's what it's not saying. Because that's very important to know what the text is not saying. Uh, all right. So as we approach this, I want to share this, um, by the way. Because depending on how you grew up, depending on what church you grew up in, depending on what denomination you grew up in, that's really going to affect how you read this text, obviously. Um, you might read this text and you might have a certain background you didn't even know you had a background in. You might come from a denomination or church or some sort of theological training that is going to be more on man's responsibility, and you might come from a background that's going to be more on God's sovereignty, and that's going to change how you approach the reading and interpretation of this text. Our desire, and this is probably in some ways not impossible, but almost impossible, is to say how do we remove ourselves from our framework of thinking and just try to answer the question of what is the text saying? So not how do I approach this text with my framework, but how do I step back and say, what is the text truly saying? Uh, a guy named Ben Witherington III, uh, this is probably the most commentary name, like the most like professional, Ben Witherington III, uh, he said this, theological systems, listen, while not bad in themselves, can often lead to very strained interpretations of biblical texts, especially when the system is the primary intellectual grid through which the text is being read. This can easily be illustrated from a close reading of Protestant commentaries on Hebrews 6, 1 through 6, since the Reformation. Differences of interpretation are usually based on whether a Calvinist or an Arminianist is reading the text. This is a, a simple summary, but this is true. Depending on if you have more of this background in Reformed theology, which would basically emphasize God's sovereignty in this and the security of believers, or if you maybe have what some might call uh, an Arminian worldview or a Wesleyan worldview or a Reformed Arminian worldview, whether or not you have that perspective is, well, you can, there, there is some way to be, you can lose your salvation or even leave it. You can lose your salvation or leave it. So we're going to look at the four common views of this text and walk through it. And like I said in the beginning, my prayer is that God would just bring clarity my prayer in all of this, as we walk through this, and again, this is more of a teaching right now. We're going to have three points, and this is, we're going to focus on number one the most. My prayer is that there'd be clarity, there'd bring hope, there'd be warning, that whatever it is the Holy Spirit wants to do with this text, he would do in your life. Some of you might need to be comforted right now. Some of you might need to be warned right now. And I think that the, we're saying, Holy Spirit, do what it is you want to do with your word. That's our prayer, really. So we're going to do our best to do that. All right, here's how we're going to break up Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 12. Three ways we're going to break this up. The one that falls away, verse 4 through 6. The land that bears fruit. And the church that stays faithful. As we walk through this text, I want you to kind of see these big ideas. All right, the one that falls away, the land that bears fruit, and the church that stays faithful. This is kind of how we're going to break up the text today. And we're going to focus more on number one because this is more theological. And then I think number two, the land that bears fruit is the best illustration to even explain what the text is saying. So, you ready? Is everyone ready? Got your thinking caps on? I mean, yeah, you need a journal, pen? All right, here we go. Uh, we're going to look at the first one, the, the one that falls away. Can you read again with me Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 6? Let's read this one more time. It says, for it is impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Who is he writing to? What is he saying? How do we apply this to our lives? There are four views I'm going to give you. I'm going to share all four of them with you, and right now we're going to focus on number one. Take notes, screenshot things, re-listen to the sermon. It's okay. I probably will as well. Here we go. Number one. Here's the, uh, and they're not necessarily in a particular order, but here are the four leading views. Number one, people who, this is who it's speaking of, people who were never genuinely born again, but as close as you can get to the faith and abandon Christianity permanently. Number two, people who were born again, but ceased to believe and abandoned faith permanently. They committed apostasy, as some would say. 
Number three, these are Jews who believed in Jesus to an extent. Some say they were saved, some say they were not saved, but they went back to the temple and they sought repentance and forgiveness in the law, meaning they went back to actually offering sacrifices again and left the once and for all uh, sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. Number four, there are those who really believe this is hyperbole, possibly hypothetical, and this is a completely misunderstood passage. And we'll even look at that, and I'll break that down. All right, so ready. Number one, here's how we're going to do this. Hope you're ready. Hope you got your belt strapped on. Let's go. Number one, this is a, a leading worldview of this text. People who were never genuinely born again, but as close as you can get to the faith and abandon Christianity permanently. The main idea is they're saying, these are people, the description that the author is giving, they got as close as you could get to being born again, and they're around the church. They might have even been church members. They might have been a part of the body to some extent, but yet they were never regenerated. They were never born again, and then they left, and those people who leave, who've been around it like that to that extent, when they abandon the faith, he's saying there's no room for repentance. That's one of the leading interpretations of this text. Now let's walk through this interpretation. If you notice the five descriptions in verse four through five, the five descriptions given, let's just talk through those. We're gonna put them up for you can, so you can see them as a whole. Here are those five descriptions. They were once enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. These are the five descriptions they give. Now, I want to be really clear here. There are some men and women who I really respect on both sides of this. Men who say they were definitely not born again. I mean, uh, you can, guys like John MacArthur who lead the way in, the, in this thought, a lot of other guys who say they were definitely not born again. And you, and you read the descriptions, here's how they kind of walk through that. Here's the first one. They were once enlightened. They're saying they were not truly uh, born again, but the idea was they heard the truth and were around the truth. They saw and heard the revelation of Jesus. They knew about his death and resurrection. They walked through those doctrines to an extent. Uh, remember, he's talking to people, and we'll get to this, but Jewish believers who become dull of hearing, and it seems that possibly they're saying it's mixed with also Jews who are not fully believers. So the first idea is they're enlightened but not truly born again. That's how they interpret this. Now, as I watch through, walk through this with you guys, I want to put out the pro, pros and cons of, of what at least I see in this, of these different worldviews, some that are, I think, a good argument, some that might not be so, good, so much of a good argument. Number two is this. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They refer to this um, in this kind of way. Maybe they partook of communion. Doesn't mean you're saved because you take of communion. Well, what does tasted the heavenly gift mean? They say the problem is they tasted the heavenly gift. Jesus said, come drink in John 4. Jesus said, this is my body. Come eat, eat of me. And they're saying, look it, they're not truly born again because they tasted, they didn't genuinely eat. You know, in some ways I could see their point. In other ways, in Hebrews 2.9, it says Jesus tasted death for everyone. And so the counter to this is, well, didn't Jesus taste death for everyone? So how is that not applicable? It's possible that they're right. Maybe they needed to truly eat of Jesus, not taste it. This is the argument that, though, they're pretty confident that they're not born again. We'll look at the third description. It says, become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Um, this idea, John MacArthur would say, is they have an association with the Holy Spirit that they're aware of the Holy Spirit, they've seen the Holy Spirit at work, but they're not, tr they're associated with him, but he's not in them. Jesus did say in John 16, the Holy Spirit is with you, with the world, and he will be in you for those who believe. So partakers, according to them, is the Spirit is with them, but not in them. That's how they justify that this person's not born again. Number four, uh, they've tasted the word of God, the good word of God. They've tasted, again, that phrase, the good word of God. Uh, remember, when Jesus fed the 5,000 and 7,000, they heard his word, they ate the food, but not everyone there obviously was born again. Their argument is you can taste the word of God, but it does not mean you partook of it and were born again. That's possible. And then number five, the powers of the age to come. Again, they were, they've tasted the powers of the age to come. They saw this, they were around this, they saw the healings, they saw the miracles, just like the people in the Old Testament saw the healings and saw the miracles, and yet they didn't believe, so too these people saw it and they did not believe. The verse they might use for this, for someone who says uh, that they were never truly born again, is Matthew 7. Matthew 7, verse 21. Maybe you remember this. Jesus said this, and this is a very serious thing we take. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and did many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you 
who practice lawlessness, the powers of the age to come, that they might have even experienced miracles themselves, just like Jesus described in Matthew 7. They might have experienced the power of God, just like this Jesus described here. They're saying, see, so they, their argument is this. They're getting as close as you can get to being born again, redeemed. They're around it. They're in it. They're excited by it. It's maybe that parable of the sower where like it springs up for joy, but the sun chokes it out. That's their kind of take on this. And, and I understand their argument. The argument is really, we don't see them saying they're born again. They're justified. They're redeemed. They're sealed by the Holy Spirit. The terminology we use for salvation doesn't seem to be used but again, Jesus tasted death for everyone, and they tasted these things. How do you know, how do you know that this means they experienced it in this capacity? Here's the idea of this. I want to say this. This idea, whether or not the text is saying this is still a truth, this is still a truth. So for example, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, John gave an example of people who were around the church and in the church, but not truly born again. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, John says, they went out from us, but they were never, they're not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out from us, listen, they went out from us that they might be made known that none of them were of us. He says they were around us, they were with us, they were, of, uh, they were from us, but they went out to show they were never really of us. So the idea of this worldview of Hebrews 6 is saying, these people were not born again. They were around this. They were as close as you could get. They were 1 John 2.19. They were around it, but they were never really of it. Because if they were of it, they would have continued with us. Their point would be, um, if you're truly born again, you are going to persevere to the end. Anyone who truly believes in Jesus will continue with Jesus to the end. Their part argument, which is 1 John 2.19, and it's true, if someone were to leave and abandon, John is saying they were never really of us. That is a true thing. That is a true thing that I fully believe and we see in scriptures. Is that what this text is saying? That's the question though. Is the text talking about that? I think they make their argument. I, I think they have some good points to it. Here's the second argument. <laughs> You're like, just, what are you saying? But we're gonna keep going. Here's the second argument. Uh, people who were born again, but ceased to believe and abandoned the faith permanently. So therefore they committed apostasy. The second belief around this is they were genuinely born again. They were in the church. They were, and they walk through the description. And they go, it's so obvious. I love how both sides, by the way, think it's so obvious. When you read different people, you'll see like, it's so obvious. They're never truly born again. It's like, it's so obvious. They were truly born again. And man, it is tough when you, you hear the arguments and you walk through it like we're trying to walk through it. I mean, they walk through these five things. They're enlightened. They tasted. They partook of the Holy Spirit. Good word of God. The powers. Like they're saying they were born again. And their argument is, look at how descriptive it is. He's trying to emphasize his point. That's the point. He's trying to emphasize his point. Obviously, they're born again. And so here's, here's, there's two sides of this, by the way. When someone says, when someone kind of has this, there's usually two ways they believe this. They believe then you can lose your salvation or they believe you can leave your salvation. Let's start with the first one. There are those who say, listen, you can lose your salvation. I really, really have a hard time with that theologically and just on almost every level. Here's why. Sometimes we talk, I think we have Christian, Christian cliches. Like, let's talk about Christian cliches. We will say a terminology and not really know what it, like, it means or we don't really have scripture to back it up or we kind of pull scriptures out of context to back it up. So they go, oh, they obviously lost their salvation. Like, they lost their keys. They lost their wallet. And I lost my salvation. Where'd my salvation go? That's kind of how they talk about it. I, I, I can't land on that conclusion for me. The, the argument that they're making then is, well, they didn't lose their salvation, they left their salvation. That it's their decision to believe, so it's their decision to leave. And then obviously salvation then is based upon me and my choice and not necessarily God choosing me before the foundation of the world. So they say they didn't lose it, they left it. And they'll say nothing can separate you from the love of God, nothing, but you can and that's still, that's still one of those things where I see what they're saying from this text. And if you embrace it with that framework, I understand where they're coming from. It's possible they're saying it, it's speaking of apostasy, that they've, they were once truly born again and left. It's interesting. We'll talk about this in a second. The word fall away is not the word apostasy. It's a different word that we, we do see used elsewhere in the Bible. Um, so we'll talk about that. But I think they have a point. Here's the point of this I want to bring up. People who argue for number two, they were genuinely born again. They abandon the faith, and they can never repent. There's one side, again, here's what I don't like about this. Once lost, always lost. I don't see that. That's what they're saying. If you're truly left, you can never come back. I see that as long as there's breath in your lungs for repentance, um, you can repent, and we'll talk about that in a second. 
but they're basically communicating once you've left, you've always left, and this is where the fear comes in, this is where the anxiety comes in. Now, I do wanna say, here's the positive side of this interpretation. The positive side is, um, man, these people like cling to Jesus. They're saying, don't stray, don't walk, take this serious, feel the weight of this. I agree with that. I think that sometimes Christianity, we might not always feel the weight or have the fear of God or have the awe of God. I think that's what we can learn from in this. I think we really do need to take on more of a, this mindset that God is God and I'm not. Um, that according to Romans 8 and Romans 9, there's a side of God where, wow, um, he is the potter, I'm the clay. You know, what he says, go. If he wants to make me a vessel of honor or dishonor, that's his prerogative. Who am I to say, why have you made me this way? According to Romans 9. There's a side of this where there's, it's really humbling, um, but there's a side of this, I think, that leads to a fear that Satan tries to capitalize on which is he tries to convince people, you've gone past the point of no return, you can never come back to Jesus, and we'll see why I think that's not the case. Um, but I think there is some validity to what they're saying. It's possible that you could say this person was, and I'm trying to bring up the pros and cons, you guys. I'm not even trying to like necessarily be like, I'm, not, I'm trying to share with you my wrestle through this text, but there's pros and cons I see to almost all these views. We're gonna go to number three. Here's the third most common view. These were Jews who believed in Jesus to an extent. Maybe they were saved, maybe they were not saved, but they went back to the temple and sought repentance and forgiveness in the law. So meaning this, uh, the author is writing to people who are Jews coming out of Judaism, believing in Jesus the Messiah. That is very clear. There's definitely believers. Now here's why they make this argument. If you look at the wording, he says in verse one through three, he talks about us and we, and now he's using the words of those, like them, if they fall away. Uh, and then he goes back to beloved, and he's talking to like those believers again. Um, so their argument is, these are unsaved Jews who are also mixed in with the real born-again Jews and the Messiah. They are so around it. They heard about Jesus' death and resurrection. They know he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They know that intellectually, but you know what they've done? They, they can't fully dive in, so you know what they're doing? They're going back to the temple, which was still in existence. They're going back to the temple, and they're actually offering sacrifices of lambs and goats on the temple again, disgracing Jesus, disgracing the finished work of the cross, the once-and-for-all payment. There's some validity, I feel like, to this argument as well. There's some issues. I struggle with this one, but there is, seems to be some validity to this one. Uh, let me give you to you a quote by a guy named Bob Butley. He said this, however, he says, there are two contextual issues that need to be examined. The presence of three groups, us, those, you. And number two, the Jewish nature of the doctrine in, verse, in chapter six, verse one through two. These point toward a synagogue in which believing and unbelieving Jews worship and study together. The unbelieving Jews have clearly seen the power, glory, and truth of the gospel in the scriptures and in the testimony and changed lives of their believing friends. So he's saying, no, this is speaking to those Jewish people who are around this, mixed in with the believers. They went back and now they can't repent. So they went back to Judaism. They offered sacrifices all over again. Now they can't repent. There's a side of us where like we want to believe that because that kind of gives us like, oh, that's not us. Um, but I don't know if that is fully the example of it. I think it is a decent argument. I think it's worth exploring. Here's the fourth approach to this text. And this is the last one. This is, these are like the four big ideas to this text. The fourth one is, this is hyperbably, this is possibly even hypothetical, this is completely misunderstood. Here's the idea of this argument. They're saying, why does the author in verse nine, like look at verse nine, he goes, but we are not speaking about you. Like we're confident of better things, things that accompany salvation. Why warn them if it's not them, is their argument. Why say this is, we're not talking about you. We're just kind of speaking in like a hypothetical way if someone were to do this. That's kind of their take. Here's how one author put it. And I want you to actually hear this and think about this. Don't discredit this. Here's how one author puts it. His arguments run like this. Listen, let's suppose that you do not go on to maturity that we talked about that last week. Does this mean that you will go back to condemnation? That you will lose your salvation? This author says impossible. If you could lose your salvation, it would be possible to get it back again. And this would disgrace Jesus Christ. He would have to be crucified again for you, and this could never happen. So here is kind of their take on this. Um, in verse 6, when it says they crucified Jesus and put him to an open shame, it's this ongoing present participle way it's written. So it seems, according to them, it's written this way. As long as you are crucifying Jesus openly and publicly and disgracing him by your lifestyle, as long as you are doing that, you cannot repent. So understand, he's not saying this. They want to repent and they can't. That's what this, they're trying to make. 
He's saying if they want to repent, they can, but as long as they are living this lifestyle, going back to the temple, going back to the sacrifices, going back to whatever, as long as they're doing that, they're putting him to an open shame, they're crucifying him all over again, and as long as they are doing that on that ongoing way, as long as they're doing that, they can't repent, but as soon as they stop, they can repent. And I can see their take on that. It seems to be written possibly in this ongoing way. That seems to make sense in some ways. Um, Here is, I think, the truth behind this one. Here's the truth. Um, Listen, Jesus died once and for all. We see that in Hebrews 7, Hebrews 8, Hebrews 9. Jesus died to never die again. Actually, some read this in like a positive light. You go astray, you fall away. Well, guess what? Um, Jesus is not gonna be re-crucified for you. He's not gonna re-die, re-die for you. Why? Because he died once and for all. And that idea is true. But is that what all they're saying? That's the question again. So you're like, Josiah, you're just messing with me. I know. Um, here's, here's what I wanna get at too. This is kind of their take on this. This word impossible is used four times in Hebrew and it does mean impossible. This is also another word that Jesus used in Mark chapter 10 and we're gonna read that to you. Remember the story, really quick, follow with me, stay with me. Uh, Jesus is, uh, is walking, a rich young ruler approaches him and says, Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus says, man, keep the law, obey the commandments. And the guy's like, I've done all of that. First of all, he hasn't. And he goes, okay, perfect, you've done all that. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And what does it say? The rich man walks away very sorrowful. And then Jesus says something. He goes, it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom. He says at first, it's hard. Now listen to this. We're going to put the verses up so you can hear the rest of the story. Mark 10, verse 24. Jesus asked them, he goes, children, speaking to his disciples, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? He says this, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is, say the word at home, with men it's impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. So here is their take. It's impossible to renew them against their repentance. And like, yeah, you're right. Jesus says, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. They go, well, then who can be saved? If rich people can't be saved, who can be saved? And Jesus says, though it is impossible. It's impossible. And this is the same word. Though it's impossible with men, um, it, not all things are possible with God. With God, all things are possible. So you know what? It's impossible to renew them to repentance, but from them, from their vantage point, from our vantage point, me to get them to renew them to repentance or them to want to repent themselves, but with God, God can get them to repent. They're saying this is like the rhetoric being used seems to be almost emphasizing the fact that Jesus did die once and for all. We cannot re-crucify him. We cannot re-put him to an open shame. And so there almost seems to be this hope in this, like, yeah, you're falling away and that's not good. And there's a warning in that. Like, don't do that. But you know, you're, you can't re-crucify him or put him to an open shame because he died once and for all. And it's impossible. Yeah, with men it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So is it not, are all things not possible with God? So it's, it's this, this weird thing. He says it's impossible. And that, it does mean impossible. But Jesus said with God, all things are possible. And he's speaking about salvation. So that means, does that mean this is possible? And this is where your mind just goes, ah. All right. So here's, my, everyone's confused. Like even worse. I was like, yeah. Okay. So we're walking through this. And here's what I want to get to in just a second. Is what, who is he not writing to? But let me just say this. What does it mean he, to fall away? If they fall away. That word if is not there. The ESV puts it the best. Uh, it does say, and then have fallen away. It's assumed they fall away. They fall away. This is not the word apostasy or apostatize that we see elsewhere. This is not that word, but it does mean to abandon, to completely turn your back on. So it's used in a similar context. Here's why I'm bringing this up. Uh, In Galatians chapter six, this word abandon or fall away is actually used in another way. It's interesting. In Galatians six, verse one, it says it this way. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, say trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Here, what Paul says, Paul says, if anyone is overtaken in a, and he says, in falling away, same word, same root word, if anyone is taken in being fallen away, restore one. So Paul actually says someone can fall away, but he says restore them in this same word, the same root word. Here's, I believe, how fall away is being used, I think, more accurately in some ways. Um, in Proverbs 24, it does talk about righteous people falling, right? Proverbs 24, 16 says, For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. Guess what? A righteous person will fall and fall and fall and fall, but they get up, get up, get up, get up. This idea seems to be they fell away permanently. That's what it seems to be communicating, because Paul, again, says, you see someone who's fallen, restore them, man. Restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Restore them, restore them. We're told to go out to the one who fall away. The point is, I should never on this side of eternity say, yep, they apostatized. How would I know? I don't see the, I don't see the beginning from the end. 
I don't see that. How would I know that? How, how dare I claim to take the place of God? But yep, that's an apostate. Yep, that's Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Oh, you want to repent? Too bad you cannot repent. The text, again, let me just say this. The text is not assuming they want to repent. It's almost assuming, it's not almost, it seems to be more assuming the fact that they don't want to repent. And so the idea for us that we want to look at is who is this, who is this, being, who is this not being spoken of? So we always want to know who is it speaking of, but who is it not speaking of? Who is he not writing to? So let me just give you some encouragement right now, so please hear this, because there is a heavy warning in this. But know this, who is he not writing to? Listen, he is not writing to the prodigal. He's not writing to the prodigal son who has had relationship with the father, who knew the father, who says, I don't love you, I don't want you, I just want your money, I just want your wealth, I just want your inheritance, give it to me, it's mine. The father gives it to him, he goes, he blows it, women, partying, alcohol, whatever. He blows it all. He's now finding himself eating with the pigs. And it says, and he came to his senses and he goes, maybe my dad will let me be a servant in his house. I probably can't be a son again, but maybe my dad will let me be a servant. And what does he do? He goes walking home, but the father sees him in the distance and goes running to him and embraces him and hugs him and says, put on my best ring, put on my best garment, kill the fatted calf. My son is dead and now he's alive. And so this is not speaking of the prodigal. If someone has gone astray or gone away, do not be like, oh, this is Hebrews 6. No, that's probably a prodigal. And I really want us to hear this and know that. This is not even someone who's just backslidden. I mean, Jeremiah talks about this. Isaiah talks about this. That's not someone like, oh, they're having a, like, there might be a season where you are going back to old sins. That's, I would say repent, repent. And as you're going back to old sins, you, there's that trust in God still. It's not that you're purposely abandoning him. You're, you're saying, I want nothing to do with him and I'm leaving the faith. It's not that intentional, willful desire as much as there's a season of sin and you, you do need to repent. Um, this is not talking about a person who's having a crisis of faith. This is not speaking of someone who's just having like a really um, doubting time in their life because Christians will doubt. And we see, we see Christians doubt. We see Thomas doubt. We see the man say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We see Paul just like, hey, pray for me for boldness. We see this idea, it's not someone who's having a crisis of faith. This is not that. You know, this is not someone, let me be really clear, who wants to repent. The, the, if you want to repent, you can. If you want to come to Jesus right now and say, but look, this might be me, and maybe there's fear of that. Um, listen, the fact that you're aware of that and saying, I don't want this to be me and I want to repent, this is not you. Uh, John chapter six, verse 35, here's what this says. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me, listen, all that the Father gives me, I will come to, will come to me, will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I'll by no means cast out. Do you hear that? The one who comes to me, I'll by no means cast out. If you came to Jesus, by the way, that's the father doing that. But he's saying, but if you come to him, he's not gonna cast you out. So if you wanna repent, it's like, oh, sorry, you hit your limit. It's not what we see. We don't, this is not the prodigal. This is not the person who wants to repent. This is not that. I think that is so important for us to get. Listen, I want us and myself, this is something I had like preached to my heart. I'm not here trying to hold on to God and be like, God, please, Please, like God, I'm holding on to you. Like, don't, I don't want to lose you. This is not that. Jesus said in John 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. Listen to how beautiful this, this is. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Jesus is like, you're in my hand. Uh, you're in the father's hand. You're not going anywhere. This is not us like trying to keep our salvation. Like I really hope God lets me keep it. No, th Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Jonah 2.9, we study this in the book of Jonah. Salvation's of the Lord. We've been saved by grace through faith, not of works lest anyone should boast. It was the work of God, the work of the cross, the te telestai, that it is finished. It's that he has it all. So there's this side of this where this should, I, here's, here's what we see in scriptures. For those who are afflicted with this, with Hebrews 6, I want to bring those verses of comfort. With those who are comfortable, in some ways you want to afflict. With those who are maybe too comfortable in this state, well, I'll just continue to sin. Whatever, if God has me, if I'm in his hand, I'll just continue to, I'll just continue to do whatever I want because I'm once saved, always saved, right? Isn't that how that works? And so I'll just do whatever I want. And I would say, uh, watch out. I would say there's a side of this where you need to be really careful. God can resist the proud and gives grace to the humble. Approach him with humility. Be the person who bangs the chest saying, have mercy upon me. Have mercy upon me, O oh God. Not the person that goes, thank God I'm not like him. We're told to approach God in that way. We come boldly to the throne of grace, but we also come humbly as we talked about a couple weeks ago. And this is how we approach him. So I, I do want to bring comfort because I really have talked to people 
who've suffered severely to the point of being <laughs> institutionalized because of this verse. That's how serious this is. People who genuinely have believed, I've gone too far. I've gone too far. God can never forgive me. Um, that is not the case. I, here's Romans 8. I love what Paul says. I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, you need to hear that. If you're the person who's like, I want to repent, and I want, will God accept me? Yes. Like, yes. If you're the person, I believe, who really has taken this to the extreme, where you say, well, I'll just do whatever I want because I, I prayed a prayer 25 years ago. Obviously, I'm gonna go to heaven now. And that is your attitude. I, I would question if you ever really believed. I'd question if you ever really knew him to begin with. So we're more looking at who's it not write, written to. Now, here's the main point. Can I tell you the big, the big point, the big concept? Um, come back to Jesus. The big point of Hebrews 6 is uh, don't drift. Don't abandon. Don't intentionally walk away. Don't unintentionally walk away. I always say the big takeaway is um, you want to be the person that stays with Jesus, stays close to Jesus, walks with Jesus, and knows Jesus. So hear my heart, church. Um, wherever you're at, come back to Jesus. Whatever you find yourself in, as a prodigal, as someone who's just made issues here, that come back to Jesus. Press in to Jesus. Now here's where I think it gets even more clear he gives an illustration of what he says now. So number two, we're going to see the land that bears fruit. And I think the illustration is actually more helpful than what he just said. So here's, here's the, the, what he says, the illustration he gives. Verse seven, for the earth with, which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and, and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. The Bible, now the author gives an illustration the Bible constantly uses. He basically says, look it, there's fields. God, the Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust alike. So it's raining. One field produces fruit. One field produces thorns and briars. So here's the idea. Um, as you hear the word of God, as, you're take, as God's raining upon you in a sense, are you bearing fruit or are you bearing thorns and thistles? Are you bearing fruit or is there death? No life, nothing happening. Let me just say this. I think the illustration gets more clear. He's saying bear fruit. Bear fruit. If anything, if you're like, what is this saying? You want to know what this is saying? This is saying bear fruit. This is saying be that field that takes in the rain, takes in the word of God, takes in those things of God, and it leads to fruit. If there's no fruit in your life, he says whose end is being to be burned. Um, if there's no fruit, that's when you go, hey, Lord, cultivate within me fruit. Remember the parable or the story where there's a tree that has no fruit on it? And the man's like, give me some more time. Let me dig around it. Let me, don't, don't tear it up. Don't throw it away to be burned. Let me dig around the tree and let me try to fix it. Let me see if I can bring it to life again. And that is the idea of, um, I believe God has given us. And if you're in a season, there's no fruit. God is right now in this moment speaking to you saying, okay, let's work on some things. Let's bear some fruit. Believe on me, trust in me. Uh, put the good relationships, good community around you. Put some good things in your life to cultivate fruit. Don't be the one that doesn't bear fruit. The parable of the sower, the seed fell on four different types of ground, the wayside, out of the way, just on, on the road. It fell on stony ground and it fell on amongst like thorns and those bushes and it didn't produce fruit. Then some fell on good soil and the soil produced different amounts of, of fruit, 30, 60, 100. But the idea is, you know, it, it fell on one and it produced fruits and that's what we're looking for. That's what Jesus is looking for. He's looking for those who bear fruit. John 15, Jesus said it this way. I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Listen, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Jesus is saying, I just want you to bear fruit. You believe in me, you're connected to me. We talked about this last week with abiding. Uh, you believe in me, you're connected to me, you're going to bear fruit. You don't bear fruit, you're not, not pruned. Pruning is for those who bear fruit. Um, you're actually cut out. And he goes, whose end is to be burned again. That's how... Hebrews 6 puts it. The point is for us today, we bear fruit by abiding in Jesus. So abide in Jesus. Get close to Jesus. Come back to Jesus. This illustration is shining light. If you want to ask all these questions on what does it mean, was it not, here's the illustration. There are those who bear fruit and those who don't bear fruit. Uh, don't be the ones who don't bear fruit. Be the ones that bear fruit. That's, what it, that's like the big point of this. And then he speaks just love and confidence into them. And this is number three, the church that stays faithful. Let's look at verse nine. Read verse nine. Listen to this. He says, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. He goes, but when it comes to everything we're talking about, it's, you know, it's impossible to renew them against repentance. The, the ones that are not bearing fruit, but concerning you, 
We're confident of better things. Yes, things that actually are associated with salvation. Like we, we have this faith in you that God is doing something good in you. This is the only time he calls them beloved. This is a chain of, change of tone. This is a change of who he's speaking to. Those who fall away versus beloved, you guys, you who believe in love, you who bear fruit. And he actually then walks through verse 10, which is so beautiful how they have borne fruit. Verse 10 says, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. God is not unjust to forget your, your work and your labor of love. So he goes, you know what the fruit that you bear? You bear this fruit of love, which is the fruit to bear. God's not going to forget it. He's like, hey guys, you're struggling here. You're becoming dull of hearing. You're drifting away. Uh, I want to be careful that none of you are going to abandon God. And he goes, but I, I'm confident of better things. Actually, I, I remember and God remembers your work and labor of love. And man, we need to hear that. I think some of you might need to hear that. God is not unjust to forget. Because God doesn't forget what you've done what you've done in his name, what you do, do minister in his name. If God remembers the fact that you can give a cup of cold water to someone in Jesus' name, if God can remember the fact that you give in secret and he will reward you, reward you openly, God's not gonna forget. God's like, I don't forget. I don't forget your work. I don't forget your labor, your labor of love. And guys, love is laborious. To love, um, it, it's heavy. It costs you something. It's exhausting. It's tiring. It's emotionally draining. It's financially draining at times. Love is laborious. And he's like, God's not gonna forget your, your work and your labor of love. And, and what you minister in his name. He's like, he, he remembers this. You know, it's so interesting to me. We all know for the most part, maybe you don't know this, but the longest chapter in the Bible is Psalm 119, right? The longest chapter in the Bible is about the Bible. The second longest chapter in the Bible, which is really random and I find interesting, is number seven. And if you read number seven, it's very hard to read number seven. It's very hard to stay focused and read the whole chapter. If you want to try later today, go ahead. It's basically God saying, hey, this group of people, I remember that you gave me this, this, and this. Hey, this group of people, and he's like naming the family or tribe or, or the home, and he's saying, oh, you gave me this and this, and he's recording everything that they gave to God. And, and I love that because the second longest chapter in the Bible is dedicated and devoted to those who give to God. God's like, I remember. And God is not unjust to forget what you've done for him. God takes note of it. I love that. I love that. It's like, does anyone see what I'm doing right now? And first of all, that's like an attitude we probably shouldn't have. Does anyone see how good I am? Like, that's probably not the best attitude. But if you ever do feel that way, know this. God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love. That God sees. You don't need other people to see. You don't, need to, you don't need to do it openly. Do it quietly. Do it secretly. God will reward you openly. God sees. And he's saying, listen, church, there are those who fall away. And there are those who don't bear fruit. You've borne fruit. And he's speaking into them, I see this in you. And we'll end with verse 11 and 12, and it kind of sets us up for next week. He says, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And then he's going to talk about Abraham, who through faith and patience inherited the promises. And the big takeaway is what? He's saying continue to the end. The big takeaway is if you truly believe in Jesus, you love Jesus, you've been born again, guess what? You will persevere to the end. If they were of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out from us to show they're never really of us. The whole point is, man, if Jesus has regenerated your heart, you've been made new, man, you've been born again. It doesn't mean you're gonna have seasons of dryness. It doesn't mean you're not gonna have seasons of crisis. It doesn't mean that you're not gonna sin and repent and sin and repent and sin and repent and a righteous man falls again and again. But here's the idea. You will continue till the end. And through faith and patience, enter into the promises that God has for you. Listen, faith in Jesus is not this one-time thing. It's this ongoing thing. You put your faith in Jesus to be born again, and guess what? Every day from that day forward, you're still putting your faith in Jesus. And that is the idea. It's not I put my faith in Jesus 25 years ago somewhere. I'm putting my faith in Jesus. Salvation is I have been saved. I'm being saved. I will be saved. Salvation is threefold. And this is what it's talking about. You will continue. To, it's, just, it's just a byproduct of, of naturally abiding. It's a byproduct of believing in Jesus. It's a byproduct of being born again is you will continue to the end. So church, this is one of those texts where I do believe the spirit for some is trying to warn you and wake you up where I don't know where you're at or what, to what extent this is, but I believe the Holy Spirit's like, you need to wake up. Don't put Jesus in open shame. You can't, don't try to re-crucify. Don't try to do things, like, wake up. I really believe that there's a side of this just saying, wake up. Don't be the field that's not bearing fruit. Don't be the field that just, the, it rains and rains and rains and it just produces death and death and death. I believe the Lord at the end of the day, however you want to approach this, Number one, two, three, or four, however you want to approach this, or some other byproduct of this, listen, wake up, bear fruit, abide in Jesus. 
stay connected to Jesus, press into Jesus, uh, continue to the end as he says. Like have faith in Jesus day after day, moment after moment. I'd say press in church. So for the mothers out there, for all the mothers in your room, this is Mother's Day. This, this is so heavy. I know. Happy Mother's Day. We love you. Um, but for those who are feeling that, I would say this. This is that wake-up call that I think every mom who loves and believes in Jesus wants to see their kids walking with, with the Lord. Um, I think this is that wake-up call of saying, hey, right now, if God, you believe, is speaking to you, don't quiet that voice. Don't silence it. Don't put it off and say, I'll repent later. I wouldn't do that. I definitely wouldn't do that. Don't be the person that says, I feel some sort of waiting conviction that I need to repent and believe in Jesus. But you know what? God's pretty good. I'll just deal with it on my deathbed. Do not be that person. That's all I want to say is do not be that person. Uh, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Paul said in Corinthians, he goes, the today is the day of salvation. Today's the day to put your faith and believe in Jesus, to trust in Jesus, to repent. If you come to him, he'll by no means cast out. Don't think, I can't come to him. I've already done what you said. No, those who come to him, he'll by no means cast out. We have example after example of the prodigal come home to Jesus. Amen. You know, in light of today's text, in light of today's heaviness and the topic, um, we are actually going to provide like a prayer room right now through Zoom. We have some deacons and our elder, Mike, um, available for this. If you would like prayer, please see this a Zoom ID, get into Zoom, log in with the ID, and just say, I need, pr- I need prayer. I need prayer. Um, we would love to pray with you. If there's fear, if there's questions, guys, c- can we not be the church that hears the word and then walks away and forgets? Can we not be the church that hears the word, receives it gladly, and then the sun just chokes out the life of it? The hope for us is that we hear, we receive with joy, and it bears much fruit, and it continues to bear fruit, and God prunes, and it bears more fruit, and prunes, and bears more fruit. Pruning is painful, and when you prune, guess what? You don't always see fruit, but it will bear more fruit, and there's a time for us to do that. So I'm going to say, if you need prayer, which I don't want to say if you need it. We need prayer, man. I need prayer. Like, don't second guess this. Don't go, I don't know if I should get prayer with someone. No, they're willing and longing to pray with you. And so I'd say, please like embrace this, enter into this. We love to pray with you right now. Um, we'd love not to just uh, share this kind of a message and be like, all right, happy Mother's Day, bye. Like that would not be fitting. So, so please actually embrace this and, and get prayer. Um, I'm going to pray right now. And then please just still stay tuned in. We're going to share a couple announcements and then the questions for discussion. Like, you want to discuss this with your husband or wife? You want to hop into a Zoom group? I think there's three Zoom groups today. More happen this week. Do that. This is the week to discuss this. You have questions? Like, this is the week to get into this. And please do not just make it theological because it's not just supposed to be some uh, heavy ideology out there. It's God's supposed to bring application to our lives and that is to bear fruit. So if all you want to do is discuss this in the theological realm, but then your life doesn't show love, you're still missing the point. So join the group. Be a part of this. Let the Lord bring a healing to you in this. Let him cause there to be repentance in this. Listen, we love you. We are praying for you. And I'm going to pray right now that the Lord makes application where he needs to and that you would take advantage and enter into this prayer room in this way. Let me just pray for you guys. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for your word. As heavy as it is at times, or as maybe just just full as, as it is. God, I just ask that you bring clarity. Anything I said that is not from you, remove it, Lord, please, and just have mercy on me in that. God, I don't want to misrepresent you or your word, but also, Lord, I know, I know how good you are. I know that, God, you run to the prodigal. I know that, God, you are a father who longs to see their kids repent and come to you, so we thank you for that. And, and God, we just ask that through this, there would be much fruit that Jesus, that we'd be known for our labor of love, that we'd be known for that, that this would not just be theory, that Jesus would truly experience you and not in just this partial way, but in this full way, just that we'd walk in the newness of life, that we would just even bear fruit. And when you prune us and it feels like there's no fruit, that in your timing, that there'd be just more fruit, Jesus. We just, we just look to you. We just want to abide in you and seek you. So we thank you. We praise you now in your name. Amen.